Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. Here's a sample of what's ahead. That was the moment when the avalanche hit me. So it's, it's just one of these quirks of timing. I happened to be off the rope when I was hit by the avalanche. It has enriched my life and, uh, and my experience, and I think it has made me a better person. Occasionally, you hear a story that is so powerful, it simply stops you in your tracks and compels you to drop everything and just listen. Touching the void into thin air or the white spider all come to mind. Jo Newton is a climber, single mum and science engineer based in the northeast of England. Jo's story, or should I say stories, are simply remarkable. Like many, Jo fell in love with mountain climbing at university. She felt compelled to spend as much time as possible up high in that pristine, wild world of snow, rock and ice. She dreamed of bigger summits, but a trip to Tian Shan was traumatic and life-changing. It took many years to work through the trauma, but more tragic drama lay ahead. How Joe has responded to her experiences is testament to the very best of the human spirit, courage, redemption, the value of friendship, and a determination to strive to be the very best you can be against the odds. This is Joe's remarkable story. Hi, Joe. Great to see you. How are you? Oh, Andy, lovely to see you as well. Uh, virtually, obviously, it's been a while since we've seen fa- seen each other face to face. I'm really, really good. Just finished a day's work. Uh, my son's about to cook me tea, which I'm really looking forward to. He's a he's a very good cook, actually. He's doing his Duke of Edinburgh silver at the moment, and as his community service, he is cooking for me, which is great. It works for me. It works for him as well. How old and is he? Apparently, it works for the Duke of Edinburgh. He's just turned fifteen. Just turned fifteen. And I, if I remember rightly, he's well. He's a pretty energetic kid, but he he really likes cycling. He is massively into mountain biking, and uh, he's interestingly he's just picked up climbing. Um, so even though he's been going to crags and a climbing wall since he was three months old, um, so there was a, there was a time when I would be climbing at, at Sunderland Climb Wall, which is our local climbing wall, and uh, and James would start crying, and I'd be halfway up a route, as like right time to lower off. <laughs> and so yeah, he he went to climbing walls at a very early age. Uh, he went to Klimnos when he was three months old never took to climbing. He was never going to be a climber. As soon as he was put on a balance bike, it became part of him. And he must have been about three or four years old when he did about 15k on his balance bike and broke it because he took it outside its ergonomic envelope. And um, and then he got onto a push bike when he was about five. Has never been on a tag along or anything like that. Has always had his own bike, ridden his own bike, used his own judgment. And it was obvious that he was always going to be a mountain biker. And indeed, that's exactly how it's turned out. And he's now racing downhill. So, yeah, uh, a bit of jeopardy there. Uh, what's that like when, you, when you're watching him do that kind of thing? Oh. <laughs> there, he's just got to the point now. So he, he did um, Fort William Downhill Nationals a couple of weekends ago. And that's just got to the point where I don't watch. So up till now, I've been kind of okay with the jumps and the 
the routes that he does. Um, it's just getting to the point now where I just don't watch. And I assume that he's going to land everything safely. And lo and behold, he does. And, and actually, what I have noticed is that he doesn't actually have to hit jumps perfectly because he can he can recover. So if I landed some of the t- ways that he would he landed and like his front wheel nearly washing out and stuff if that happened to me I'd be often in hospital but he seems to be able to recover from it and, and just carry on so wow. so his, his what, kind of his envelope is much much greater than mine I've, I've looked at that some of those trails coming down in Fort William from beneath the cable car and yeah it's nice to look at them yeah, uh, I would, yeah. I would, you, I'll, I'll never be going down there on a bike. I, but I what, don't even aspire to ride the stuff that James rides now. I just don't aspire to it. I don't want to do it. Did you have? Were you an energetic kid? Did you have a lot of energy as a child? Yes. A I, I, looking back, I, I think I did, and I spent a lot of time outdoors, and uh, just because of where we lived. So I, I lived um, sort of for. I guess until I was about six years old, um, I lived in a, a sort of a, a village that was surrounded by trees and a bit of woodland. And so I, I was, I just climbed trees by default uh, and built bracken dens and diamond streams and, you know, sometimes with my mates and sometimes by myself. Um, so, so I was kind of always up high. And what brought that home was my brother, who's uh, one of my brothers is much older than me, he's 13 years older than me. And he reminded me that um, he took me to Lausanne Cathedral in Switzerland and uh, we went up Lausanne Cathedral and he said as a joke you know uh, we went up the uh, the spire and uh, and he said as a joke you know come and stand on this parapet and I did and he was absolutely horrified because it was you know it's a sheer whatever it was 150 meter drop down to the flagstones below and and it just didn't phase me at all it was just sort of a kind of a natural thing to do and a natural place to be I didn't come from a climbing background or any have any climbing heritage uh and so I didn't actually know about climbing at all I used to scramble on the boulders and um sort of a roundabout when we when we moved to Chorley uh, I think I actually looking back on it I think I discovered Angles Art Quarry and and did a little bit of bouldering there um but you know it wasn't in sort of family heritage at all so it's only at university that I discovered climbing um, one of my friends. Where was university for you? It was at Loughborough. Um, so the nearest crag to Loughborough is Beacon Scar, uh, Beacon Crag. Beacon Scar is our local crag here, one of our crag crags here. Uh, it was Beacon Crag and uh, it was absolutely awful uh, in retrospect. But the first time I climbed there, I was so excited that night I couldn't sleep. And it was like, this, this is what I've been waiting to find. And uh, and I've, ju- I've climbed ever since. I've climbed ever since. Presumably back then there were no, I don't know what year that would have been, but it would have been, were climbing walls around? Were they just starting or not really? Not really. It was 1985. Loughborough University had a an outdoor climbing wall <clears throat> at the back of the engineering block. So there was a, a brick wall and some of the bricks had been taken out uh, and so had little, formed little pockets. Some of the bricks had been taken out and had a bit of a limestone lump in it instead from memory. So very, very rudimentary Uh, climbing walls that we had in those days uh, and with some gravel at the bottom that you could jump off into Um, and and you could those those bolts in the wall I remember and a belay at the top and so you you could you could lead them as well Proper, proper old school it was properly properly old school yes and and I remember actually I remember the foundry in Sheffield first opening 
and that was that was like that was revolutionary that's oh my word 30 years you know, ago. that's an amazing facility yeah it was it was sort of groundbreaking and it's it's it's, it's still pretty good place and the wave has, has stood the test of time a famous yeah. bouldering wall were you into i gather you were into competitive cycling running and even horse you're a horsewoman is that uh, right? I, I did a little bit of horse riding uh, I, I i wasn't skilled as a as, a, as a, a, a horse rider at all i just enjoyed it and you know when there, when there's an opportunity to to ride horses I, I rode horses but it was always it was the running fell running and uh, and cycling road biking that I was into and then um at the late 80s as well I started getting mountain biking I was, I was doing a a year's placement with my uh, degree I did a chemical engineering degree and I was doing a, a year placement as part of that in North Wales and uh, one of the guys that I was working with got an orange mountain bike and and I'd never seen a mountain bike before and uh, and so I sort of rode that a little bit and uh, and then as soon as I graduated and got some money started work got some money I bought my own mountain biking I bought my own mountain bike it was Gary Fisher and um yeah and, and then started riding in the on the on the single track on the moors near us um but you know there was there was no tracks being built through the woods as there are now I mean I live just in front of Gisborough Woods now and uh, and there's so many trails through the woods now but mountain biking just wasn't a thing in the same way and is that a big uh, as we'll get on to climbing and and and, and that but is, is mountain biking still a big thing for you it's it's more of a thing um because my son does it um and I was I was after We'll, we'll come on to my accident, I'm sure. Um, after my accident, I was always going to climb again. Um, I was always going to run again. Uh, ski, mountain biking and skiing uh, was, were the two harder things um, because of the balance point of view and a confidence point of view and doing jumps and stuff and, and drop-offs. Um, so I've, I've, I've now... Um, I started mountain biking again being clipped in to keep my prosthesis, um, that's a bit of a clue, isn't it, about what we're going to talk about later, um, yeah. to keep my prosthesis stable on the on the pedal and took some horrendous falls because I just couldn't release it. So then I went to flats, but I couldn't keep my foot on the pedal. And then as soon as I discovered a toe clip um, with it, without a strap, so just a toe clip to keep my foot on the pedal, then I was away. So I'm, I'm really enjoying mountain biking again and, um, and, and and sharing James's love of mountain biking. And to be honest, if I didn't mountain bike, I wouldn't see him. So it's worth doing it just for that. Yeah, hard to keep up, I would imagine, though. I don't even try. Don't no. even try. <laughs> Listen, let's go back. So university, that's when it really kicked off for you with climbing and, and uh, that, you know, an exciting time, isn't it? Loughborough, which is known, I mean, it, a lot of people... It, 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 there's a big sporting uh, sort of people are psyched at that university, aren't there? There's a there's a lot of energy there, um, elite sports people, uh, and I presumably when you joined the university club and you were just off here or there and everywhere. Yes, yeah. I mean, I wasn't one of those elite sport people. Let me put that out there right now. Uh, so I joined Loughborough because it had a really good. Uh, its engineering department, its chemical engineering department, had a really good reputation. And uh, I, I I went on an open day in like the campus. And um, interestingly, you say about sort of all the, the sports people there and the jocks. Um, one of my friends, school friends came to visit me. and She's like, Joe, this campus, everyone just runs everywhere. <laughs> and it's true. It did have that energy that you were talking about. Um, 
I, I joined the Loughborough Students Mountaineering Club completely by chance, really. Um, so a, a friend on my course joined the, the climbing club because it's sort of like in the, the Freshers' Week at the Freshers' Bazaar. Uh, she stopped and talked to people at the um, uh, Loughborough Students table climbing table and uh, and they sort of encouraged her to join she did but then of course she needed someone to belay her and she was like oh jay jay's pretty sporty jay will belay me and and so i did and that's 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 helen that's who i went to beacon um crag with and uh, and started and, and climbed for the first time in my life and just blown away by it and uh, and then interestingly helen's about the same size as me um she gave up climbing soon after that and sold me all her stuff, a pair of old EBs and her harness. Um, I'm not sure whether we used chalk in those days or not. I can't remember. And uh, and so I, I had her harness and boots then and ours away. And so I, I used to go and sort of like to all the Loughborough um, weekend meets in the minibus instead of Helen then. I mean, some people, you know, they get into climbing and they know really quick, very quickly, they decide that it's really, it's about rock climbing or it's about bouldering. Were you somebody who were, you were just psyched on all of it and you'd like, you know, the mountaineering and the winter stuff? I I didn't know about mountaineering, first of all, as I say, you know, it just wasn't my background at all. Um, my, my parents walked um, and, and enjoyed walking outside and, and going to the Lake District and stuff. But, you know, I, I didn't really know mountaineering existed. And so I used to climb through the winter on rock. So, you know, I'd go with friends to the Lake District in February and we'd climb verglassed rock and uh, it'd be absolutely freezing. So we'd, you know, we'd drop our grades down to like be diff or diff or <laughs> moderate, depending just how bad the conditions were, you know, just have water dripping off my elbows and, and just sort of assume that that's what people did in winter. And, uh, and then went with Loughborough students, went to Chamonix one summer and put my cramp I'd bought some crampons and ice axe never use them this is sort of a horror story that, that people tell uh, went up in the cable car stepped out onto the valet blanche and put crampons on for the first time and uh, and that was it I just loved it I loved it uh, I knew instinctively that I'd found my world it was I just loved everything about mountaineering I liked the I liked the hardness of it I liked the isolation I liked the the sort of being putting yourself into a position where you're a bit strung out I I just loved all of it I loved the environment I loved the thin air that sort of really cold sort of air that you get as you breathe it in down into your lungs I just found it all so beautiful and that led on to you know more adventurous trips yeah so I'd, I'd never I've never really climbed that much in the Alps um it's always been places that were more isolated so it's just been me and my climbing partner in the in the mountains and sometimes I was soloing so it's just me in the mountains then and that's absolutely what I preferred so I took three uh, took six months actually sabbatical from work I was working with ICI up in Teesside at the time took six months off work and uh, went to South America and and just sort of Went and climbed routes in South America, didn't really know what we were climbing, absolutely loved it, and, and then did the same in 1999, I think it was, um, and, and just took eight months then, well, took 16-month trip altogether, eight months in North and uh, Central America and eight months in South America, 
and it was you know it was, it was we didn't really have guidebooks um Yossi Brain was collating information about um Bolivia when we were there and then you know unfortunately he died in an avalanche while we were there um so we were, we were just looking at a mountain that we liked and, and climbing it by a route that looked good so it was all very very much um exploratory mountaineering that I was doing and that I loved I know you had a a, a sort of a tragic experience really in, in Kyrgyzstan where someone you were climbing with so tell us a little bit about that Yes, that was that was absolutely formative, and um, you know it was it was twenty it was half my lifetime ago, so it's twenty eight years ago, and uh, and and still deeply affects me. So I was climbing on an expedition, uh, Mount Everest funded expedition. There was four of us in Kyrgyzstan. We were um, climbing um, in an area of the uh, the Tian Shan Mountains as they sort of go into Kyrgyzstan there, the western side of the, the Tian Shan. Um, and uh, Kayandi Glacier is a tributary of the Kayandi Glacier and um, you know I'd, I'd been out there with my fiance called Mick um, for nearly a month and we, we'd been climbing just outside Bishkek and then the other two guys in the expedition came out and we went to the Kayandi this tributary of the Kayandi Glacier and we were going to uh, climb our first mountain there Mick and I were really acclimatised uh, and we were going to climb a mountain there, which we which we'd seen from high camp, which we did. Um, we were about, I'd say, maybe 100 meters from the summit, um, on the summit ridge, and Mick fell. Mick fell to his death. Wow. So um, that took that took probably 10 years to to work through. And you'll probably able to hear from my voice that it impacts me still. Wow. Um, but it's at that point I was. I wasn't prepared to to give up mountaineering and part of it was not wanting to give up Mick to be honest um it was not wanting to let go or not being able psychologically to let go and so I I I pushed through um through climbing and through mountaineering again to come back to come back to that mountaineering world and uh, and managed it <laughs> and then ironically that's when I I just made that breakthrough I was just when Mick fell, uh, well, actually, Mick, Mick, we were unroped. Um, there's there's a bit more to that story. That um, two two Russian climbers, I was climbing with two Russian um, mountain rescue climbers to to look for Mick's body, uh, or as part of the search for Mick's body, and uh, and they they fell to their deaths as well. Uh, and when they fell, the the rope that was holding us, holding the three of us, um, snap broke. Well, it broke against a a rock. Cold line. And uh, and they fell and I didn't. Um, so you know, a huge amount of grief, bereavement, survivor guilt to to and post traumatic stress disorder. Looking back on it as well to work through, uh, which yeah took a solid ten years. And so I'd I'd just got to the point where I could lead freely again. Uh, I wasn't worried about falling. I wasn't worried about the rope broke it breaking. Um, I was I was climbing again for the moves rather than for the protection. Uh, it was I was climbing freely in a way that I I had been previous to those accidents and those fatalities, uh, and that took yeah that took ten years of of sort of I'm I'm going to say just bloody mindedness really of of pushing and pushing and pushing and uh, and and finally getting there, and uh, and ironically that's when I had my accident. 
that's just just the way it goes yeah wow um and of course that so you just made that breakthrough and then your own accident which you you don't necessarily have to go into details but obviously um i think well it was in the alps wasn't it it was in the alps it was in the swiss alps actually i find my accident uh that was now oh 18 years ago 18 years ago uh, it was yeah, it was, it was more or less ten years to the day after after Mick's death. Um, I find my accident much easier to talk about still than than to talk about the fatalities and to talk about. Mick is that because Russian's there death. was? Is that because it was just you in a sense? I think that is exactly that, Andy. I think it, it happened to me, um, and and I survived. And and I think these, you know, there, there was there was psychological trauma involved with the adaptation of um uh, I lost my my um left foot and, and lower leg in in the in the uh in the accident um so you know there's there, there's there's some psychological trauma there without doubt and frustration and everything that comes with um a, a life-changing accident like that it's n- nothing compared with the the trauma of grief that I had for me, it was it was a much much easier trauma to to deal with and to work through. That's amazing, isn't it? Because um, I didn't really know about Kyrgyzstan, to be honest, uh, and so you know, I I thought we were going to focus on that, but actually, in a way, you you yeah, was there something about everything you'd gone through in that Kyrgyzstan saga that made you more able to deal with this as well? Now that that's a, a really interesting question, a really interesting question, and uh, I, I had grief counselling, um, sort of at the at the time and later, and uh, and one of the things that I said to my counsellor, I remember saying to my counsellor, is you know that I sort of feel as though I've been swimming upstream all my life, really, and uh, you know, and, and sort of difficult things happen, and I sort of like swim against this this strong current that's trying to sort of carry me away and uh, and I say you know like people you know people who have this mill pond existence you know they, they're, they're not noticeably doing like shed loads better than I am you know why aren't they out of sight and um, and what she said to me is well Joe it's just made you a really really strong swimmer so there wow. I think there's certainly an aspect of that yes when you came back to climbing after your the, the second uh, accident, where you where you lost your your foot and lower leg, that I know, I know now you're you're a para climber. Was that something you got into straight away, or was there a big gap? Or talk us about through that journey into becoming a competition climber and, and climbing for the GB team. Woohoo! Which uh, which I have to say is such a huge privilege, such a huge privilege, and I I love it. I I've, I've, well, I've always loved that, that sort of competitive arena. Uh, I, I love competing against myself. It's 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 having that benchmark to push me to compete against myself. You know, other people can do what they like, and and so when I when I compete, it's it's not about the position that I come. It's about how well I feel I've done, and and how much training I've put in, and how fit I'm feeling, and 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 how well I'm I'm able to express that. So it's 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 a, it's a very internal thing and an intrinsic uh, feeling that I get from it, and I love it. It's such a buzz. It's such a buzz. People listening might think, you know, what's the time frame? Or I'm thinking, what's the time frame from? So you 
for you, 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 uh, your body's different. And what happened after that? Presumably, you've got you've got a solid career and a day job. Uh, this is before you were a mum. It is. It is. It's, yeah, just just before I was a mum. So um, I, my, what happened in in the accident is that um, in Switzerland, uh, eighteen years ago, uh, we just climbed the Matterhorn. Uh, I was climbing the Tashorn Dom Traverse. Uh, got caught in an unforecasted storm and uh, benighted on the ridge at about 4,000 metres. Uh, we were descending the following day uh, and I got avalanched. Uh, my climbing partner didn't uh, for one reason or another. Um, I, I got avalanched and um, got swept about 400 metres in the avalanche. Um, the snow stopped, I was completely buried um, and I managed to melt myself out. I think the saliva must have been pooling in the front of my mouth because I just knew without thinking that up was out. I mean, I could have been in any orientation, but I knew that up was out. Um, and I, I managed to melt myself out. There was, I could, I remember it really, really clearly, Andy, really clearly. When you um, say melt yourself out, what do you mean? So as the snow stopped, I instinctively swept my left hand in front of my face to, to create an air pocket. And then the snow stopped and it really does, when it's not fluid and flowing in the avalanche, it really does set like concrete. So I, I was immobilized in the snow uh, and the voice in my head said very, very clearly, move or die. And so I tried to move and, and I couldn't. And, uh, and so then dying didn't seem like the alternative option that was uh, that was feasible. So I tried to move again. And what I found was that I could just flex the first finger joint of my middle finger. So I, I started flexing that, that was movement. Uh, and then as I flexed that, I was able to flex uh, the rest of my fingers. And then I was able to flex the whole of my fingers, not just the first joint. Uh, and then I was able to sort of move my palm and move my whole hand as well. And, and this was all very instinctive. It was very clear. It was very controlled. My breathing was always incredibly regular. And I just remember thinking, move or die. And what I was doing, I now realizing, was, was pressing um, my hand against the, the snow. And the pressure melted the snow. So I was able to exert the pressure and melt that bit of snow and then exert the pressure a bit more and melt a bit more of snow. Because interestingly, um, as I was falling in the avalanche, it was a spindrift avalanche, big spindrift avalanche. As I was tumbling in the avalanche and ragdolling, um, several things happened. One is that uh, my boot and crampon, I think, must have caught somewhere and that snapped my um, left leg, uh, snapped the, my shin bone and my left leg and snapped my sort of... Um, the bottom part of my left leg off completely. And, uh, and the other thing ha that happened was um, the, uh, my boots and my gloves were sucked off me in the uh, sort of draft of the avalanche, I think. So I was in my stocking feet, I, I later knew, uh, and I didn't have any gloves on my hands. Uh, otherwise, I I'd be dead now. I wouldn't be, we wouldn't be doing this podcast now because the padding of the gloves would have absorbed that very small flex. Um, but I had bare skin, so I was able to press against the snow, melt the snow, 
melt a little bit more space, press again, press again, press again. Uh, and I think that um, it it must have, the, the spin drift must have been quite blocky at that point as well, um, because I remember my, my fingers finding a crevasse, sort of, sorry, a crevasse, a, a crevice in the blocks and sort of being able to press, press against this crevice and move more. And then I was able to get my whole arm into a crevice in front of me. It was, this is all completely dark, completely dark. And uh, and then sort of worm myself up upwards. And I remember my hand sort of patting a horizontal surface, which obviously was the surface of the the, the avalanche debris. Uh, and then I was, you know, I was just able to wriggle myself out and, and manoeuvre myself around and get myself out of my rucksack and, and just wriggle out and, and, and get myself free back onto the surface of the avalanche. So presumably, well, it sounds like the almost maybe the body, the heat from your hands were helping and then obviously for people listening who might not know that you know if you are well the blocky bit is probably it sounds like it was a, a wind slab avalanche which is why the structure of you know something that had that had maybe um, which is why it was maybe blockier but also um you know we know that from statistics that you you've generally got about 15 minutes of air to breathe so yes. actually by yeah. being able to sort of create that 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 gap to the surfaces, you know, saved you. And uh... yeah, I, I have I have absolutely no idea how long I took to melt myself out. Absolutely no idea whatsoever. Um, my I was wearing a watch at the time, and that that was, that was I lost that to the avalanche as well. Um, so it, it, it's definitely a spindrift avalanche. I remember the avalanche sort of funneling down the gully above me. And, and, and hitting me and it just plucked me off my ice stance so so easily so easily um and then as, as I was on the glacier later you know I, I could just see other spindrift avalanches just funneling down the down the okay. face that I'd, I'd come down sort of fueled by the uh, by the storm wow um but but I, there, there was something about the 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 terrain where the avalanches stopped I was down in the Berkshire and so you know whether it sort of hit a you know, sort of part of the Berkshund wall or or there was rocks underneath it. Or I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I just know that I was able to um, to melt myself out and I shouldn't have been able to do that. And meanwhile, your partner was up higher on the mountain or? Yeah, so 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 what happened for, for people who are who are listening and who are interested um, is that we were we're abseiling down. Um, we only had one rope between us. So obviously we had to double over the rope each time uh, so that we, we could recover each time and uh, so we were only able to add 25 meters each time and uh, I'd, I'd got it was a really chossy horrible face that we were abbing down it's not a climbed face for a reason and um, so I'd, I'd seen a sort of a some ice in the gully beneath me um, so I, I sort of abbed, abbed down to that hacked a, a bollard out of the ice uh, and that point realised that uh, my climbing partner Steve still had all the slings um, from when he'd um, set up the last ab. And uh, so, so it, as ha- often happens with accidents, there's there's multiple layers of protection that fail, and uh, and that was one of the layers of protection that failed. So I didn't have a sling to put round the bollard that I'd just hacked out of the ice uh, to. to um, for the next ab as, a, as the um, station for the next ab 
So, so another thing that had happened was that another layer of protection failure um, was that I was right at the end knots of the rope, rope right at the end knots of the rope. So the rope was really taut. So in order to for Steve to sail down to me and bring the sling, um, I had to take myself off the rope. Otherwise, there wasn't enough slack in the rope for him to be able to ab down. So I was um, sort of daggered in and, and kicked in this sort of section of ice in a gully um, off the ropes. The ropes that I'd released the ropes and they bounced up slightly, obviously, as the tension of my weight on them was released. Steve started coming down, and that was the moment when the avalanche hit me. So it's it's just one of these quirks of timing. I happened to be off the rope when I was hit by the avalanche. Um, but that meant, obviously, um, Steve was was above me and on a, a rib, and the avalanche sort of came down a gully that I was in because that's where the ice was, and uh, and that's why the avalanche hit me and not him. So it's wow. These this this is this is the type of thing that happens in in the mountains. How long was it before you got back on the horse in any sort of climbing? A year, two years, much longer. My foot was amputated. Uh, in in hospital, my surgeon, my Swiss surgeon, was absolutely amazing. A really, really humane individual. Um, so he tried to save as much of my limb as he could. Um, so I've now got a show part amputation, which presents as a Symes, if anyone's interested, which is much, much more functional than a, a standard blown knee amputation uh, because it's load bearing. And so it means that um, the, I, I wear a different prosthesis, which can be strapped to me uh, rather than relying on, on vacuum to sort of like to, to be held in place. Um, so it's it, it's 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 much more functional, and I can I can walk around short distances without a prosthesis at all uh, because my my limb my residual limb my stump is load bearing. But there was there was some trauma to to soft soft tissue trauma uh, that wasn't healing that took about so I was in hospital for a month in Switzerland uh, and then repatriated to the UK and um, didn't have a prosthesis at the time because I say there was there was part of the of, of my lower limb that wasn't healing um, because the the soft tissue was damaged by uh, by the lack of blood and by the cold that it had been exposed to because I, I was on the glacier for 30 hours before I was rescued. So I couldn't I couldn't wear a prosthesis. I hadn't had a prosthesis made uh, and I, you know, I couldn't sort of tolerate much around my uh, around my stump. But I did go to Sunderland Climbing Wall uh, on crutches after about two months. Uh, so I would sort of hop to the bottom. I'd, I'd like be on crutches to get into the wall um I sort of hop to the the bottom of the route and uh, and then I'd climb with three limbs uh, which is how some paraclimbers climb all the time uh, so I was back climbing more or less straight away I'd say uh, and then when I got a prosthesis um I, I actually my first climbing trip was to Pabe Mingle and that was the summer that was a year after my accident for people that haven't been uh the islands of Pabe and Mingule, beautiful. Uh, but I would say it's one of the places in the UK where you, it's in the UK, but you feel like, I mean, it's like going on an, on an expedition, isn't it? You're out there, you take a small boat off the west coast of Scotland 
and it's a pretty committing place if something goes wrong you have to know what you're doing and it's uh you've got to abseil in and climb out beautiful but it's it's not for everybody is it it, it i guess not it's you know two small uninhabited islands um in the outer hebrides chain as you said off the west coast of scotland uh absolutely stunningly stunningly beautiful and uh but the the you know the main cliff on mingley dun mingley massive cliff uh you have to abseil in on a 100 meter static line uh to a, a wave wash platform at the bottom and then you're committed to climb e1 or e2 to get out uh, that's i think that's the easiest route out it certainly was when we were there i was climbing with someone who was a very good climber so i knew that they would be able to lead me out uh, i was only seconding at the time i hadn't got back into lead climbing again at that point um or certainly not at e1 or e2 and and that whole thing about you know the 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 abseil in and the sort of the the wave wash platform and that element of isolation because a boat had dropped us off and wasn't going to collect us until you know four days later you know I was very familiar to with that from you know climbing in Peru and Bolivia and Kyrgyzstan and and the other mountaineering expeditions that I've done so so that 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 felt normal to me that that was just it's just kind of what 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 people do did you become a mum first or did you start competing as a paraclimber first I, I very much became a mum first. Uh, so my son was born three years after my accident. Uh, yeah, 2008. Was that something you planned or did, was, was that process speeded up because of the accident or how, how did you sort of... I'd always wanted kids at some point. Uh, I knew that. Um, and then, you know, time was starting to run out for me. And, uh, and so, you know, having a child became my next focus. And, uh, and you know... Thank, thank goodness, uh, are successful, and not everyone is. And uh, absolute joy, and motherhood has always been a joy. And my son is is a delight; he really is. And so, you know, then the whole motherhood thing takes over. You know, as a, a parent yourself, Andy, you'll absolutely appreciate that. That um, you know, my son, you know, then became my focus. Of course, well, people listening are thinking, "Hold on." Are we, are we dealing with superwoman here? So you've got a full-on job, you've got a family, and you suddenly decide that I want to compete as a paraclimber. Is that is that right? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't quite like that. It was a little bit more mellow than that, Andy. So uh, I took three years out after uh, actually after uh, well two two and a bit years out after my son was born, um, and and completely focused on motherhood. Loved it sort of looking back now is an idyllic three years I'm sure there were frustrations at the time but I don't remember them in the slightest I remember golden sunshine and uh, and, a, and a sleeping baby it's a bit like high altitude climbing <laughs> at the time it can be quite tough but when you look back you, you, yeah absolutely stunning and you want to be back there yes yeah yeah so 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 those are much much as 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 with the you know some of the mountain routes that I've done um not all of them as we've just discussed but you know many of the mountain routes I've done are just so lovely and, and you know and, and sort of like my some of my extreme leads just gives you that sort of sense of euphoria and and I felt very much the same about motherhood. So did you just fall into the the, the paraclimbing because uh, you, you sound like somebody who's very passionate about the outdoors and of course competition climbing um, I mean it's indoors. It is is indoors, yeah. Which which I never thought I would do. I was, I thought I was a trad climber through and through, you know, a mountaineer and a trad climber through and through. And uh, I guess what happened is that I was 
climbing more indoors because indoor climbing facilities now existed. Why wouldn't I use them? Um, and because it fitted in with motherhood, you know, sort of going out for a whole day or a whole week. Well, going out for a weekend really was I couldn't commit to without James. Uh, and, and even going out for a day's climbing was was much, much, much harder to arrange. So, you know, in a couple of hours in in a climbing wall or a bouldering wall, it was, you know, it's intense and uh, and then you're done. So so it fitted into to motherhood much, much more readily. and. Uh, and and I did enjoy it. You know, I, I enjoy the climbing moves as well as the beautiful environment. So so I did, you know, I did enjoy it. It wasn't it wasn't difficult. It wasn't a hard thing to do. Um, but then interestingly, um, my son was now a bit older, and someone that I worked with, their daughter competed as a, in in sort of like the local local youth team, and and said you know and asked me if it was something that James would be interested in doing. I was like. Oh, you might do it. You know, he, he he's always enjoyed bouldering. Um, uh, he he's he was frightened of heights. He still is a little bit, and so he you know he never took to roped climbing. But he, he always he's always enjoyed bouldering as you know as a um, something to help him train his strength for mountain biking. And so I thought, oh well, maybe he'd like to do some bouldering comps. Why not? So I I I I, I look, went on the BMC website looking for for youth comps, and uh, and came across. And, and found some. James wasn't interested in the slightest, but I also came across some paraclimbing comps, and I was like, "Oh, now then, I'm a para. You know, I'm I'm sort of um, I'm, I'm a paraclimber. I could do those." So, so I I went along. Um, the first one I went along to was at, at maybe five years after my amputation, something maybe eight years after my amputation, um, five years, let's say. And uh, there was there, there weren't any other amputees there, and and it just didn't click. Uh, and then I was talking to uh, another local amputee, Esme, who was on the um, British team, and uh, she was like, "Joe, come long climb. You know, you, you'll be brilliant." And so I got into because she was an amputee as well. I, I got into into the paraclimbing because of her, really, and uh, and that's when I joined the team eight years ago. And uh, and have been on the British paraclimbing team ever since, and uh, and and love that team element of it, as well as the competing. I love that team element. I love seeing the same faces, um, you know, com- competition after competition after competition. And I don't know, obviously, what it's like for able-bodied climbing comps um, or climbing co- competitors, but for you know the para athletes. It's a very, very supportive environment, a genuinely supportive environment because we've we've all got our own difficulties and our own frustrations and our own stories and our own narrative and and we're all there despite life rather than because of anything and uh, and and and, we, and so we have that sort of genuine desire for people to do well because another para athlete doing well is is us doing well so i and, and i i just love that sort of sense of team uh, that doesn't just exist within the gb team but exists within say the al2 category women's al2 category which is my um competitive category so al stands for amputee lower uh, one is um both limb loss a leg loss and uh, and two is just one le- uh, lost leg Listen, you've just been out in Austria, but I, uh, the the paraclimbing finals, and that's that's a big deal. But I just want to 
talk a little bit about, give people a sense of what it's like leading up to that. So presumably there's a lot of training, um, you know, that you have to fit around life. As we mm. know, you're, you're, you're a busy lady. So mm. give us, I mean, how many comps do you do a year? What's the training look like? I mean, is, is the training, can you do that at home? Do you have to go to a climbing wall? Do you get to train with other uh, para climbers often or is that just every now and again when you get together just give us a little flavor and insight into that world yeah so I mean obviously it, it depends every para athlete has a different experience because it depends absolutely on on everyone's individual circumstances so I can only talk about myself so um, I'm not sponsored uh, there's there's no money really in para climbing um, it I have to have a day job. I'm a single parent. Uh, I need to support my child and keep him in the lifestyle that he's accustomed to of keeping him in mountain bikes. And, um, and you know, that, that comes with a price tag. So I, I have to earn money. I have to earn money. So, you know, my, my son comes first, my work comes second, and then my paraclimbing has to come third after those things. So I fit my training into the time that's available so I have a training plan uh, I have several training plans from Neil Gresham and uh, and and they've they've absolutely trained changed how I climb and this year uh, with the, um, the the GB paraclimbing team I've got a coach as well and so um, I'm coached um, by our northern coach and uh, and, and and she's absolutely changed how I climb as well. So I'm I'm really really lucky there. I boulder. Uh, I've got um pull up bar and um, beast maker. Yeah, but it's it's really really tough. It is really tough to fit it in. Uh, and sometimes you know it's ten o'clock at night, and it's like, do I do a training program now and potentially injure myself, or 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 do I not? And so I, I have to. I have to do what I can. So sometimes I can do a full sort of two-hour session. Sometimes it's a shortened session. Where I, I I work away two days a week in Edinburgh, uh, and so I go to Ratho one night a week. Um, so I, yeah, I, I fit in what I can. I fit in what I can. Has that made a difference? Because Ratho is is one of the it's one of the biggest lead climbing walls in the country, isn't it? Um, as that because I know you you tell us about how you did in in in, in Austria. How did you do in Austria? so uh I came third I came third amazing I was so so pleased I got bronze uh wasn't expecting to amazing so how often will you travel to comps not as not as often as I'd like so um you know very few people will be uh au fait with the paraclimbing calendar um the um IFSC International Federation of Sports Climbing um, competition calendar. So we now have three World Cups a year, uh, which is brilliant news, brilliant news, and a World Championships every other year. So the World Cups this year were in um, Salt Lake City in the US, uh, Villars in Switzerland, and Innsbruck in Austria. Uh, I couldn't get the time off work to go to all three. I could only go to Innsbruck. So that's what I did. Uh, also, for Salt Lake City, I, I had a little bit of an elbow niggle, which I, I just didn't want to inflame. Um, so 
you know, I, I, I only went to Innsbruck. That's the only one that I could, I had really time to, to do. So did the training with Neil Gresham, who obviously is a, is a, is a legendary climber and coach, uh, did he, did you work together to peak specifically for that? You know, you said, look, we've identified that's the one, that's the comp. And I want to be firing for that was that the plan we actually identified that um the world championship in bern in switzerland on august the 8th is my goal and that still is my goal so uh the innsbruck comp was was planned into that uh, and then the seven weeks i had left between innsbruck and uh and bern uh neil's tweaked that for me so i so i peak at Bern. so that's that's the the so my goal is obviously to make podium at the world championships this year it has it has a really nice circularity for me, Andy, because obviously Bern was where my amputation was eighteen years ago. So if I can make podium there, that'll be a super lovely story. Amazing, and I I was just about to say that in you know listening to your journey, uh, you know climbing has, has has taken away, but it's also given you so much, hasn't it? It's it's really interesting you say that. Um, I've got a a sampler. Um, that that my dad had and uh, that that was that came from somewhere in the family and uh, it's it's sort of it's from I guess I don't know 1890s sometime like that and it's it's a sampler that a, a, a child a, a girl would have done um, to, to show off their stitch work and it says every cloud has a silver lining and I've got a table with my uh, trophies and medals on it uh, and and this sampler sits above that table because it's absolutely true there's you know there's no way I would ever have been competitive as an able-bodied athlete uh, I found uh, a niche for myself as a para para climber and and I absolutely love it you know it's so you know w- would I change anything no I wouldn't change anything because I can't uh, so for that reason you know I, I just why even go there why even think about it uh, but actually you know, limb loss has brought me a huge amount. And it's also brought me a huge amount of tolerance, uh, tolerance of difference, uh, tolerance of others, tolerance of people who are other, um, which I, I I genuinely don't think I had before um, as a sort of like as a quite a, a focused uh, fell runner, um, competitive cyclist, climber, mountaineer. You know, I think I was probably a lot less tolerant of of other people and and other people's interests and capabilities than I am now. So I think it actually, you know, it's it has made me, it has enriched my life and uh, and my experience, and I think it has made me a better person. And 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 I'm assuming that you uh, important to you is is friendship, both you know, in climbing and and outside of climbing. It's absolutely the bedrock of my life, absolutely the bedrock of my life. And it's my friends who have, you know, got me through really awful experiences. Um, You know, I have a very close circle of female friends who absolutely stepped up to the mark uh, when when they were needed, when I needed them and uh, and kept me going when, you know, when life was really, really difficult uh, mentally and physically. And and it's that love and that friendship that 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 continues to support me, and I hope you know that I continue to give back, and uh, you know very much 
you know, it takes a village to raise a child. You know, these female friends, this circle of female friends that I have, and, and a few male friends as well, <laughs> I have to say, um, you know, they are my village. They are my village. They're the people that James, my son, knows best. And, and they shape his his experiences and his life and, and his value sets uh, very, very much so. It's a, it is an absolute joy. Joe, it's been brilliant to chat with you. Thanks for sharing a very personal uh, story. And uh, you need to get that book written. <laughs> oh, yes, everyone. I am. Right. In, in the spare time that I have, this is between midnight and 1am now. I'm writing a book. And um, let's see how that goes. Let's see when it gets finished. And, uh, and let's see how, how that goes. From what we've heard, it's definitely more than one volume, I would say. <laughs> Well, that's that's part of the uh, yeah, that's part of the question, really. Is is how you know how do I chunk it? How do I how do I how do I tell my story? Well, thanks so much. Take care and all the best at the comp in August. August the eighth, yeah, Paraclimbing World Championship. It's a hugely we haven't yeah. mentioned, and I should before we just go. It's a hugely exciting time for our sport because we find out at the end of the year. If we're one of the sports, um, one of the two sports, paraclimbing or parasurfing, maybe it's even and paraclimbing and parasurfing, that's going to be allowed into LA 2028 Paralympics. So fingers crossed wow. for us, everyone. Plenty of training time between now and then. There is plenty of training. And, and if it's an option, Andy, I will absolutely go for it. I'm sure me. you will. <laughs> I would love to. Oh, my word, I would love to do that. And, and my son would, uh, would love me to do it as well. He would be so proud. Brilliant. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe. I look forward to bringing you more stories and interviews very soon. Stay tuned.